and received an education about um, neuropathogenesis and uh, things that I didn't know very much about or had forgotten about that actually turned out to be very, very useful, um, particularly in, um, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa where half the people who are getting antiretrovirals are young women who are um, often very interested in becoming pregnant. And an issue, this issue really is not as powerfully important here, although certainly important in individual cases, has enormous global consequences, I think, because of this issue of uh, making the best drugs available for women um, and not depriving them of it, but not actually exposing fetus to un, um, unexpected risk. So hopefully by the summer, we will have this resolved. And thank you very much. I think it's very pertinent. And uh, pertinent. So now we're at the, not just the end of the, uh, the final talk, but sort of the final talk in the lifespan, because we move from actually um, perinatal HIV to actually the issue that we're all dealing with in HIV, and that is the aging population of our patients. And in a, certain, in a certain sense, who would have thought that we would come to this point, and aren't we fortunate to be able to actually um, have to deal with these issues of people living with HIV who are living normal life expectancies or close to normal life expectancies. So we're not fully prepared to do this, I think, in many ways, and um, felt it would be very important to actually conclude this um, meeting with a uh, really very um, thoughtful and informed talk about management of comorbidities in older adults with HIV infection. And Christine Erlinson is a perfect person to do this, an associate professor of medicine at the University of Colorado who has worked both clinically and in clinical research um, extensively on this issue. So I think you are. Good afternoon, and thank you for sticking it out for this last talk. Uh, my disclosures are listed here. And the goals this afternoon are to have you be able to describe the epidemiology of aging among adults with HIV, both in the US and abroad, um, to recognize some high priority issues. I'm not gonna cover every comorbidity, as I know that can get quite tedious, um, but more so offer a framework for the way that we might deal with some of the more complicated patients aging with HIV. As many of you see in your clinics every day, the majority of people in our clinics with HIV are now age 50 or older. Not only are those infected with HIV at a younger age successfully growing older, but we also continue to still see new cases of HIV among older adults. Um, in fact, about 45 to 50% of people with HIV in the US are now aged 50 or older, as you can see in the red bars in this data from the CDC, with the teal bars indicating those that are younger than 50. The proportion of those older than 50 is actually estimated to reach close to 75% of our clinic population within about the next 10 years. So this is going to become a growing issue. This isn't an issue restricted to um, the US or Western European countries and is, is seen throughout resource limited settings as well. 
although the proportion of those 50 or older with HIV in Sub-Saharan Africa has been a bit slower to increase and probably only represents about 17% of that population, in sheer numbers, the, the population of older adults in Africa far surpasses that of older adults in the U.S. Um, it's also estimated to triple by 2040, so this will become a huge issue in Sub-Saharan Africa in the next 20 to 30 years. We see similar trends in Asia, where you can see in the top gray line the increase in people with living, both people living with HIV in the figure on the left, um, increasing from a small proportion in 2003 to a much larger proportion by 2013. And then in the graph on the right, that top light gray bar, increasing in the proportion of people living with HIV that are older, older than age 50. Not surprisingly, with an increasing age comes an increasing burden of comorbidities and the medications used to treat those comorbidities. The figure on the left shows the number of comorbidities and the figure on the right, the number of co-medications outside of antiretroviral therapy. Have you focused just on the yellow bar at the top? And you can see that in 2015, that makes up a pretty small proportion of the comorbidity, of uh, the yellow bar, which is three or more comorbid conditions or three or more co-medications, makes up a fairly small percentage of what pa which patients, um, of patients uh, in 2015, but will increase drastically by 2030. A lot of times we hear this concept of accelerated aging when people talk about HIV. And what does that really mean? And are our patients with HIV actually experiencing an accelerated aging process? And this may be true for some comorbidities, but I would argue that I think the majority of comorbidities that our patients experience are probably more of an accentuated aging process. And this refers to a condition that probably happens more frequently because of an increased risk of exposure. Examples of this in our HIV-infected patient or in our people living with HIV are probably things like a high rate of smoking and therefore a high rate of things like emphysema and lung cancer or a high rate of HPV-associated cancers because of that constant exposure to HPV. That's seen in the figure on the left where the top bar, actually is this, is this the pointer? Uh, this top bar indicates the uh, population with HIV and the bottom bar, those without HIV. And you can see that there's a much higher peak in the cases of um, whatever this example might be in the figure on the left. Um, but they occur at approximately the same age. In contrast, conditions that are, occur in an accelerated format um, tend to shift about five to 10 years earlier. So in the example on the right, this condition would be both accelerated and accentuated. You see this nice high peak, but that peak is also shifted about 10 years earlier. This concept of accelerated or accentuated aging is really important when we consider screening and management. If a condition is accentuated, then we would probably place much more emphasis on things like smoking cessation, whatever those factors are that are leading to the disease, whereas if a process is accelerated, then we may change our screening and actually start our screening five to 10 years earlier. So how do we decide what we should screen in our population of people living with HIV? Um, as someone mentioned earlier, the U.S. Preventative Task Force Services, I think uh, Tripp mentioned this in terms of PrEP. This is a, a major guideline that many of us follow in terms of different screening recommendations. Um, the society guidelines by the Osteoporosis Society or the Cancer Screening Societies um, tend to follow the U.S. Preventative Task Force but may differ, which makes it a little bit difficult to figure out when we should actually screen some conditions. The HIV primary care guidelines that were published several years ago provide some uh, aspects that are specific to HIV care. 
And then um, the, the treatment guidelines have uh, a few mention of comorbidities of things that we should try to address. Um, HIV-age.org is a nice resource for people aging with HIV and some specific considerations for that population. And then a lot of our um, decisions come from expert guidelines that aren't necessarily um, highly evidence-informed but, but tend to gather um, most of the expert insights from the data that is available. I attempted to put all these guidelines into a nice concise table that would summarize everything that you need to do if you see your patient um, that would make it easy for you. But as you can see, this table did not come very concise at all, and if you print it off, it covers about three pages of all the things that we're supposed to be doing on a regular basis for our patients. Um, this covers the HIV-specific monitoring, their immunizations, cancer screenings, infection screenings, and then things that we should be doing that probably many of us never do, like counseling our patients to make sure they're wearing seatbelts and checking for other safety issues at home. Um, in our healthy patients that come in every couple of, or every three to six months for their routine HIV care, they're doing pretty well. They just have a couple of comorbidities that don't take a lot of time to manage, and they don't come in with a laundry list of other issues. We actually can do a pretty good job at trying to meet most of these guidelines, and we certainly should, particularly for those diseases that are accentuated or accelerated that we can try to really make a difference on. Um, however, I'd like to argue that for the majority of our patients, or for some of our patients, particularly those that have a lot more comorbidities, trying to meet this list of, of uh, screening requirements probably isn't helping our patients a lot, not necessarily what they want to follow, and it can be quite difficult to try to accomplish this in the course of a couple of visits when the patient's coming in with much more acute issues. So our, by trying to meet all of these guidelines, are we actually meeting the goals and priorities of what our patient uh, really needs and trying to improve their quality of life? I'm going to present a case here that's an example. Um, we started an HIV geriatric collaborative clinic at the University of Colorado, and this was a patient that was seen in, in collaboration with one of our geriatricians um, that probably represents a, a case or patients very similar to what you see on a daily basis and some of the um, struggles that we have in trying to address many different issues at once. This is a 61-year-old male who was seen in consultation with our geriatrician. He has HIV, diabetes, hypothyroidism, had esophageal cancer a few years ago. And since his last visit a few months ago, he's had a fall, his TSH increased, his hemoglobin A1C increased, his viral load increased. He's having some difficulty swallowing his pills as he had some prior radiation therapy. He has poor vision. It's been maybe worsening a bit in the last few years. Um, and he also has chronic hearing loss for which he's supposed to be wearing cochlear implants. He doesn't have any family or social support nearby. Um, he recently had to move apartments, and he's been unable to actually reach up high enough to hang up his shower curtain, so he hasn't been showering at home. And he also had bed bugs and had to get rid of his mattress, so he's been sleeping on the floor um, or via an air mattress that he could borrow from a friend. His medications include etravirine, darunavir. He was able to get liquid ritonavir, um, dalutegravir, and then he's on a lot of preventative medicines, his diabetes medications, his statins, and the additional ones listed here. His blood pressure is a hair on the high side. He's a thin, frail, um, not experiencing the side effects of integrase inhibitors man who appears older than his stated age. He's um, quite hard of hearing as he forgets to wear his cochlear implants. He's not really able to get up from the chair without a lot of pressure on his arms and trying to really struggle to stand up when you ask him to move over to the exam table. And he really appears quite unsteady in his, on his feet when he's walking across the room. 
Um, you can't really get a good feel for his mental status uh, as he is quite hard of hearing at his visit today. So here's my first audience response question. Um, what would you do at his visit today? Would you discuss his cancer screening and try to meet, uh, get him up to date on those? Would you focus on his diabetes management? His hemoglobin A1C was up over 12. Um, do you focus on his HIV as his viral load is uh, almost 8,000? Do you focus on his fall that he had a few months ago? Um, do you refer him to social work to help with his uh, issues with his mattress and with his shower curtain and his medication adherence? Or do you do all of the above? Now I can move it? Okay. Um, yeah, so this is what I expected. I think most of us want to try to do everything, and it's really tempting, and this is what we, um, we want to do the best for our patients and probably try to do as much as we can at this visit. But for some of our older patients, this is probably a bit too much. He's going to get really tired with this. He's not going to follow up with most of these, as he really has a few concerns that maybe he hasn't shared with you. Um, he's probably not going to go for his colonoscopy and everything else until he has some other issues taken care of. And so the geriatrics world has recently introduced this framework called the five M's. Um, and instead of focusing on each different comorbidity, it kind of gives us a framework in which we can try to guide the most important principles for care of the older adult with multiple different medical problems. And so this concept focuses on first what matters most to the patient, their mind, their mobility, their medications, and then taking that all into concept of the idea of multi-complexity. And I added one more called modifiable. And I'll start with that one. Um, modifiable isn't in the original five M's, but I think this may be particularly important in some of our younger, older patients that we're seeing, our geriatric patients that are in their 50s but seem more like a much older patient, um, and also our patients that we see throughout their lifespan and have an important role in, in influencing um, their lifestyle modification and many of their healthy behaviors that are going to impact their development of comorbidities 20 or 30 years later. And so I think um, within this M, a lot of this fits into the five other Ms in terms of prioritizing some of these modifiable and preventable conditions, making sure our patients are immunized, um, emphasizing preventative factors like substance abuse and smoking cessation, trying to get our patients physically active, um, focusing on managing obesity and good nutrition, and then, um, as I'm sure many of you see in your clinics, trying to help our patients find a social support network. I think loneliness is becoming an increasingly uh, significant, important factor in our older adults and trying to find them an outlet, somewhere they can go, um, and some, somewhere they can find some meaning in their life through some sort of activity, um, volunteer work, or an, uh, a hobby that they really enjoy. So the first of the official M's is what matters most to me. Uh, and this is you working with your patients to try to align their treatment decisions that are based on what they think is most important. Obviously, you probably have some priorities on things that you want to do as well, and so this may become a little bit of a bargain, but making sure that you really understand what is most important to that patient today. Um, you can assess, assess their tr current treatment burden 
asking them what kinds of things are most acceptable, what do you find is the easiest to follow, and what things are the most difficult for you to follow, what medications are the most difficult medications to adhere to or take, um, and then you can make some ch adjustments that maybe a patient will be more likely to adhere to and help them improve their quality of life. There's some handy um, uh, um, sheets online that you can find to help fill this out. This is an example of one called uh, patientprioritiescare.org that you can print off. It's just this one page, um, and it asks the patients, what are your most important healthcare goals? What do you find most burdensome? What do you find most helpful? And then what's kind of your one goal that you want to complete? These are forms that could be easily filled out it, with a patient and a case manager, and then um, you can review it when you see the patient at their next visit to try to target some of their treatment goals um, in line with what the patient feels are the most important priorities. Um, the second of the official M's is cognition and mood. And this alone could be an entire talk, so I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail um, other than to mention how important this is, particularly in our older adults aging with HIV. Assessing cognition and at least having an understanding of how much cognitive impairment a patient may be um, able to suppress and not manifest. There may be a lot more cognitive uh, impairment present that we don't realize and may result in patients um, having decreased adherence with their medications or inability to follow up with some of the recommendations. This can be a pretty quick screen. Uh, a MOCA assessment, which takes about five or 10 minutes, can give you a much can give you a really good feel for what someone's cognitive assessment is without, without sending them to a six-hour neuropsychiatric battery. Um, mood disorders are extremely important in the older adult population, as you all see every day. Um, depression can occur in up to 60% of adults with HIV and probably increases even more in the older population who have experienced a lot of loss and, and um, uh, loneliness at this point in their life. Um, typical questionnaires that we probably use in our clinics most often are the PHQ-2 or 9. Um, some geriatricians like the Geriatric Depression Scale, which uh, delves a little bit less into some of those somatic things like fatigue and aches and pains, and a little bit more into some of those um, feelings of worthlessness or having um, social isolation or loneliness. Considering some of the factors that contribute to cognition and mood, um, such as medication side effects, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, um, but many of the, unfortunately, many of the medications that we use to treat mood probably can also impact cognition. So just assessing if some of those mood medications are actually still necessary in giving patient benefit. Um, considering hormone or vitamin deficiencies, although, although I think we probably all try to blame thyroid um, problems on every disorder that patients have and it never comes up positive. Um, and then hearing and vision impairment are increasingly recognized as important problems that we see contributing to cognitive impairment. Um, hearing impairment and, both, and uh, cataracts both appear at uh, almost an accentuated or an accelerated um, stage in people with HIV and are very important and probably can further uh, worsen some of these cognitive impairments. So as able within confines of what insurance will cover, um, getting patients in for hearing assessments and trying to get their impairments um, uh, addressed to the best of your ability uh, can be very helpful for preventing further declines in cognition. Um, back to that modifiable factor, physical activity is one factor and one thing that we can do to try to preserve cognitive function throughout the lifespan. So encouraging, again, our younger and middle-aged patients to stay physically active. Um, it doesn't have to be going to the gym for several hours a week, but just going out and go getting out and going for a walk can have a huge impact on cognition over the lifespan. 
Um, there's not great recommendations on what to do with antiretrovirals in terms of cognitive impairment, other than that being on antiretrovirals appears to be one of the most protective factors. Um, certainly a consideration to changing antiretroviral therapy if a patient appears to um, experience toxicity on it. Uh, this is probably much more common with efavirenz-based therapies, but as we talked about earlier today, potentially some patients may experience this with dolutegravir as well. Um, again, the same uh, issues with loneliness and trying to help patients find support networks to help them, and then considering how someone's cognition and mood are impacting their daily living. For our patients that are still driving, should they still be driving? Are they capable of driving? Are they safe to be on the road? Um, for those that have difficulties with their medications, can we do things to help them um, in terms of medication assistance or home health uh, that can help them set up their medications and set up their pill boxes? The next M is mobility, and this encompasses things like gait and balance as well as falls. Um, Mobility, I would argue, is probably a condition that appears to be accelerated in older adults with HIV. And this is data that we've shown from the MAX cohort or the multi-center AIDS cohort study. And you can see the men with HIV in the red line on the bottom and the men without HIV that are similar in age and um, other risk characteristics in the blue line. And there's a faster decline in gait speed over time that really seems to separate at about age 50. We similarly see an increased risk of frailty among men with HIV compared to uninfected controls. And again, that seems to start at about age 50 with a men with HIV having a much higher risk of frailty um, after age 50. This increased risk for frailty and other functional impairments are associated with falls. Falls are, uh, high, have a high risk or a high um, morbidity and mortality burden and are associated um, with increased risk for death among older adults or extremely important complication of aging or that we can see in aging. And you can see here in data from the HALO cohort, which is a cohort of both men and women that are followed in the AIDS clinical trials group network, um, among adults that were frail or pre-frail, so had kind of this vulnerable state with um, weakness and slow gait, that they had an increased risk of recurrent falls in the year prior with almost a 40% rate of falls in the year prior in this cohort with a mean age of 50. In the older adult population um, of people without HIV, people over 65, uh, about 30% will experience a fall every year. And you can see in this data with a mean age overall of about 50 to 55 that we see falls anywhere from 18 to 40%. So probably an accelerated aging process in this population as well. Importantly, people with HIV have an increased risk for osteoporosis. This may decrease in the years to come with the transition from TDF to TAF. Um, but in the years of TDF, we see that the rate of osteoporosis is probably about four times higher in people aging with HIV compared to the general population. Um, and this risk of osteoporosis, therefore, increases the risk of having a fracture when someone does fall. In the MAX cohort, we saw that about 5% of people that had a fall ended up with a fracture. And in this cohort from Boston, the ARCH4F cohort, about 13% of falls were associated with a fracture. This is data from the Partners Healthcare System out of Boston and compared women with HIV in the orange line and men with HIV in the orange line compared to those without HIV. And you can see an, a steep increase in the risk of a fracture starting at about age 40 to 49 in the men and at about age 50 to 60 in the women. 
early, early identification and intervention is really the key with these mobility impairments and falls. Um, the more that we can identify, uh, we can actually um, prevent quite a bit of these mobility impairments if we can identify them and intervene at an early stage before patients have really progressed. Um, evaluating mobility and balance can be quite simple and can be done just at the time that patients get checked in. A lot of geriatricians advocate adding this as a sixth vital sign when patients get checked into clinic, um, as it can really tell you a lot more about someone's function and their quality of life and their uh, mortality risk than their blood pressure or their pulse. Um, you can ask patients if they've fallen in the last uh, three months or since their last visit, if they have a fear of falling. In fact, this is probably collected in most of your clinics as part of our JCO requirements. Um, you can ask the, or observe the patient walking to the room, see how, see how well they balance, how quickly their gait is, ask them to stand on one foot, ask them to stand heel to toe, and that can give you a great assessment of their balance. If they can stand on one foot for 30 seconds, they probably don't have too much of a problem. Um, interventions, uh, I think probably the most important thing in our patients is to check to see what their bone density is and if they have a high risk of fracture. And screening for bone density is recommended for all men with HIV starting at age 50. This can be a little challenging to get in many of our patients. Um, at least in Colorado, Medicaid covers this, but Medicare will not. And so once our patients flip over to Medicare and they're at highest risk, they can no longer get their DEXA scan. Um, but in those that we do identify osteoporosis or osteopenia, um, trying to intervene, and I won't get into the treatment for that today, but um, at least identifying it. The STEADY program is a program through the CDC that focuses on fall risk, and this has some great resources. Uh, patients can, or you can print out a, a handout for patients that has a checklist, and they can take it around their home and look for falls risk factors around their home, check to make sure they don't have loose cords or loose rugs, make sure there's adequate lighting in the um, areas of highest risk for falls, um, slip rugs and uh, um, bath mats in the bathtub, things like that that are going to help them decrease the risk for falls. The study program also um, has referral programs for balance training. Many of them are low cost or free. And this can include things like Tai Chi classes, which is actually one of the exercises that is most beneficial for falls reduction. Um, and it also has some other exercises that patients can do at home. Um, physical therapy, if patients have the resources or the insurance, can be um, a great resource for balance training. And then again, just encouraging any physical activity as this can really help to decrease um, these mobility impairments and preserve function as patients get older. Uh, one of the most important factors as they get older to keep them out of nursing homes or skilled uh, facilities. I included several other resources here which are either free or discounted resources that patients can use for exercise. Um, one of the resources is the Arthritis Foundation which has some great kind of walking guidelines for patients that have a lot of pain. Um, and Silver Sneakers is the program that Medicare patients can oftentimes get free gym, gym memberships through their insurance program. <coughs> uh, the next M is medications. And for those of you not familiar with the term, polypharmacy refers to five or more medications. Since most of our patients are on at least three medications for their antiretroviral therapy, many of them already meet um, the, the criteria for polypharmacy after just two additional medications. Polypharmacy um, incurs a high risk for drug-drug interactions as well as for adverse effects. And this is a huge problem in our patients with HIV, as I'm sure many of you see every day among your patients. In a clinic of about 250 patients in San Francisco that met with a pharmacist, um, they found that patients averaged 14 medications in this clinic. About 12 of them were non-antiretroviral therapy. 
And when they reviewed um, those patients, uh, those medications, at least 63% of them had an important drug-drug interaction. Um, and 35% of the patients were taking 16 or more medications every day. So when we get into these numbers of 16 medications, it's nearly impossible for patients to take that number of medications every day, get the dosing right, particularly if they're complicated regimens. It's also quite likely that patients are experiencing drug-drug interactions or adverse effects and may start dose reducing and taking medications every other day um, or much less frequently uh, to try to at least appease you by taking a few but not um, able to try to keep up with that regimen completely. Um, so what are some ways that we can help address polypharmacy? I think the, our pharmacists can be extremely helpful in this regard. They can oftentimes sit down with a patient, review that medication list, and give you some suggestions where there might be overlap or difficulties with trying to arrange um, the dosing schedule. If a patient has a very um, difficult, complex dosing regimen where they have to take something on an empty stomach and then avoid vitamins with one medication, it can become much more complex and hard to stick with. If you haven't used it already, the HIVdruginteractions.org uh, website is a great resource that picks up a lot of drug interactions with antiretroviral therapies that are often missed on a lot of other websites. Uh, we talked a bit about this this morning, but I think in the older adult population, if there's a good regimen that we can avoid boosting agents, uh, this is a population that can really benefit from getting off of those boosting agents in terms of drug interactions. I know um, I've had at least a few patients that were on a boosted PI, went to the orthopedic surgeon and ended up coming back with a joint injection with steroids and had Cushing's disorder or Cushing's disease and have been on um, uh, steroids for a long period of time for the subsequent adrenal insufficiency. So I think trying to get them off of these medications uh, can be great, especially when they're seeing consultants on a regular basis. And then lastly, there's a time to benefit of many of our medications. And so we may have started a patient on an aspirin in their 60s when they had a clear benefit, um, but that benefit starts to wear off over time and they may start to experience risk. So kind of going back periodically and looking at that medication and see if patients are still likely experiencing benefit or if they're now into that stage where they may be um, more risk with their medications. If you haven't seen it before, I ran across this website a few months ago. It's the Canadian Deprescribing Network, or CADEN, and they have some great resources. They have pamphlets that you can give patients that go, um, you can give the, it to them ahead of a visit and it walks them through why are you taking medications like benzodiazepines or sleep medications? Are you actually getting a benefit from it? Kind of quizzes and prompts the patients so they start to think of um, whether or not this medication is actually beneficial and safe for them. And then when you come back to see them, um, they're all geared up to, to be ready to stop their benzodiazepine. Um, it also has some, <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> There's um, also some... Uh, um, nice tapering guidelines that if you're not sure how quickly to taper the benzo down, um, they have some guidelines on there on how to cut the doses in half that can be really helpful. And just the last thing to mention is this concept of multimorbidity or multi-complexity. And a lot of our, our guidelines in the internal medicine world tend to focus on very disease-specific guidelines. So we have somebody with diabetes, and this patient we should probably be adding insulin, adding um, uh, or upping the dose of statin, really intensifying treatment with the blood pressure medication. And in turn, this is probably going to uh, create a um, 
uh, blood sugar lows in this patient who has intermittent adherence um, and probably isn't eating particularly well, he's going to start falling more and end up with more complications. And so this concept of geriatric medicine really identifies the complexity of patients and that we try to get by with what we can. We can treat him with his, for his diabetes as well as we can um, within his confines and what he's willing to do, um, and is it going to worsen his condition um, in other aspects. In the um, um, really trying to emphasize prioritizing essential um, medications and essential treatments for him that he's willing to stick with and fit with, fits with his priorities. Um, so, second question, at what age would you stop colon cancer screening in this patient? Same one that I present, prevent, presented earlier um, that had multiple different comorbidities and was coming in. He was 61. Um, so at what age would you like to stop his colon cancer screening? 65, 75, 85, depends on his family history and his other risk factors or consider stopping his screening now. So um, many of you stick with your U.S. Preventative Task Force recommendations, um, which uh, suggest that you should continue colon cancer screening until age 75, so you passed your medicine boards, um, and no screening in adults age six, 76 and older. However, in this patient, if we plug in all of his comorbidities, his functional status, and kind of his expected um, life expectancy into this calculator that one of the geriatric services at UCS developed called ePrognosis. We find that in patients similar to this, about 100 out of every 1,000 will experience a harm from the colorectal cancer screening in the next year. And in the next 10 years, we will prevent one death from colorectal cancer So when we put all of his, his personalized medicine factors into this calculator, we find out that he's probably actually more likely to experience harm in screening him for colorectal cancer at this point in his life than a benefit. And we certainly see increased rates of cancer in many of our patients with HIV. Um, some cancers probably occur at a greater frequency, but not necessarily earlier. Um, and some may be associated with higher morbidity and mortality. Um, but in general, I think the most important principle is that we do no harm. In this patient, it's probably more likely that he would experience harm from benefit. Now, if we can improve his mobility, um, improve some of his comorbidities, and get him more functional, then we can go back and readdress this um, at a, a different stage down the road. But at this point, he's probably not as likely to benefit from that procedure. Some of our comorbidity managements actually provide specific guidelines to kind of address this multimorbidity. The diabetes, ex diabetes guidelines, for example, have specific recommendations for goals for patients that have comorbidities and have impairments in their activities of daily living um, that we can follow, but other guidelines don't necessarily have this, so it's kind of taking this into consideration. I'm gonna skip over his case because we're kind of at time, but. Um, the majority of people with HIV are now or soon will be over age 50 and older and are facing an increasing burden of comorbidities and co-medications. And some health issues with aging occur at an accentuated rate while others may occur at an accelerated rate and this probably impacts our screening and management. Adhering to our current recommendations may be beneficial in our well-functioning adults um, and others may need a more unique approach. Using the five or six M's approach uh, can help us prioritize the areas of greatest relevance to our complex aging population 
And um, this is a team approach. We can engage our team of social workers, case managers, pharmacists, nurses, medical assistants, um, and providers in an approach to try to accomplish many of these factors. And with that, just want to acknowledge my funding sources and some of my colleagues who helped with my slides, and I thank you for your time. <laughs>